That is not a T-Rex, that is me, Director Joe Johnston, the director of Jurassic Park 3. I am here to do a director's commentary for you. Uh, the second one, in fact, I did one back in 2001 when the film first came out for their DVD, but I've been requested by Universal to come back and do a second edition because of the new Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom film coming out on June 22nd. Uh, they asked all of us directors uh, from the Jurassic Park films, including Spielberg and uh, Colin uh, Travel. However, uh, I'm the only one that apparently did come back to do this extra commentary. Spielberg may be busy. Colin uh, has other things better to do. Uh, but I decided to do this because uh, I think it's an excellent opportunity to give you some behind the scenes that you may not know about Jurassic Park 3, as well as the fact that I'm getting paid $50 and all of those are in Applebee gift cards. I, Joe Johnson, you may know me from previous hits that I've done, including uh, great films like Jumanji and October Sky. But really, to me, the finest work I have ever done was Jurassic Park 3. Some would consider it to be a great sequel. Uh, I would consider it to be one of the finest sequels in history, up there with Godfather Part 2, uh, Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, um, Empire Strikes Back, and of course, Jurassic Park 3. So come with me, enjoy this uh, second commentary. I'm about ready to press play right now, and let's enjoy some of the finer moments of this film, this masterpiece, together. I, again, director Joe Johnston. The film has begun, and I'm watching this opening scene here in which the camera has zoomed in on an island uh, in big, bold lettering. I made sure that on the front it said restricted. Uh, I did not want the audience to think that this was just a normal island that had dinosaurs roaming it, that it was instead a restricted island, which people were not allowed on it. You always got to uh, you know, explain to the audience every little bit of things. I've learned over the years that audiences can be quite dumb. Here we have a uh, young Paul Kirby, played by Trevor Morgan, uh, with his, uh, I believe to be stepfather, and they are going to jet ski, or not jet ski, but parasail, paraglide, they're going to para something uh, along this island here. Uh, I'm watching some of the sequences here and just giving great flashbacks on filming the scene. We originally wanted uh, to do this along uh, or with an actual boat along an island. And some of these opening sequences, you will see that they are. Unfortunately, uh, on the first day and the first morning, there was an accident on set in which one of the actors who was driving the boat um, hits a rock, fell off the boat and almost drowned. Luckily, Steven Spielberg, producer, was nearby. And something you may not know about Steven Spielberg is he's an excellent swimmer. Uh, in fact, he uh, uh, won a few awards in college uh, during his early swim days. And the man, although he was 60-some years old at the time of this filming, jumped right in, saved the the uh, the boat's uh, driver, and, uh, you know, we can continue on from there. No lawsuits were pending. Uh, unfortunately, after that, though, we decided to use green screen. And you know what? Uh, for the budget of the film, I think the green screen looks fantastic. If you rewatch this, it looks almost as if it's a smooth, uh, some of the best graphics you have ever seen. I challenge Steven Spielberg to this day uh, on you know the graphics that he used for the first two films. I find mine to be much more smooth, uh, um, you know, artistically stylized, and, of course, something that you would just absolutely believe. Young Trevor Morgan here, the actor, you may recognize him from one of his first roles, which is in The Sixth Sense. He played the bully uh, alongside Haley Joel Osment. And I got to tell you, I still think that to this day, this is Trevor Morgan's finest performance and finest film. I know a lot of people love The Sixth Sense, and it's an Oscar-winning uh, and Oscar-nominated Best Picture. Uh, however, you know, M. Night Shyamalan, surprise endings and one-trick pony. I have uh, uh, instead taken a fantastic and record-breaking franchise 
and lowered it to uh, this film here. The boat has now veered off and Trevor Morgan, and, or I'm sorry, Paul Kirby, the character and his father have uh, sailed into the island and now we have transitioned into back home uh, with Dr. Alan Grant. Uh, I don't know if you saw, if you noticed that transition scene in which the young boy is holding uh, a toy dinosaur and you are made to believe that it's a real dinosaur, but then it falls back and you realize it's a toy. Uh, I, Joe Johnson, love these kind of tricks. I like to fool the audience and think, oh my God, there is a gigantic dinosaur right in front of me, but instead it's just a toy. Absolutely hilarious. And it's one of the finest moments I've ever done really in filmmaking history. The backstory here is we have Dr. Alan Graham visiting um, uh, Elliot Sadler, his old uh, you know, co-worker and, and uh, co-star from the first film. Uh, they were very happy to return. Here's another scene in which, uh, again, trans I should say transition, in which we have zoomed in on a parrot, and it's the entire screen. You think, oh my God, there's a gigantic parrot that has now taken over their, their world, their house. Instead, we zoom back and it's in a, safely in a cage. So again, Joe Johnson here saying, this is some of the finest transitions, camera work and skills that I've ever done. Uh, and it's all here in my masterpiece of Jurassic Park 3. I'm going to fast forward a bit uh, past these kind of boring dialogue sequences that the writers threw in, you know, as sort of some kind of build up or exposition. Instead, I'm going to get to some of the meats of this movie here. Uh, this first one I just want to point out as we uh, follow Dr. Alan Grant, he's giving a speech at a university right now. Uh, one thing I want to tell you about Sam O'Neill, if you notice closely th through this scene and throughout the entire film, he refused to wear an undershirt. The man loves to wear his collared shirts and his jacket. However, uh, he never wore an undershirt. And we told him over and over, Sam, you need to cover your chest. Uh, and he refused saying, I've shaved my chest for this film and I will continue to shave my chest for this film. There is no other thing that you can tell me. So this beautiful Australian chest of Sam Neill is just going to shine all throughout this film. Uh, not something that I chose as director, but you know, when you have a professional uh, bully like Sam Neill, you can't tell him much to do and uh, we just went with it. So just really enjoy that chest of his. Uh, well-shaved, groomed, smooth, and I believe he used coconut oil uh, as a way of kind of keeping it well lubricated and prevent bumps from happening. After he gets a speech here, I'm going to just, again, fast forward to where you see his opening with his team. Uh, this includes Billy, his uh, kind of co-archaeologist that is going to be throughout the film, uh, played by Alessandro. Uh, actor Alessandro, you probably haven't seen him anything else. I just kind of rescued him from the streets and threw him in the movie. Um, this scene in particular I really like in Montana, which uh, Billy is with a female archaeologist and they're using toothbrush and brushes and things to dig out these bones. And uh, I wanted to throw some romance in this film as well. This is not written in the script, but I wanted to at least add something that wasn't just, you know, action, drama, masterful acting. And so there is a sequence here in which they're going to be brushing this bone together and Billy takes her hand and slowly grazes the bone with her hand uh, as if it's kind of a romantic touch, as you will, a bit of a flirt. Uh, really what I want to do with this was a metaphor in which he's taking her hand and rubbing a bone, which would also mean a boner. Uh, you know, subliminal. I really like my kind of clever storytelling in this. And so as he's rubbing her hand, I want you to think this is not just a bone, but a boner, his boner. And this is a, just a romantic scene uh, in which the two of them are going to make a solid connection and rub boners together. 
But there's more exposition here uh, in regards to archaeologists and bonding with Billy here. But, you know, to me, it's a little boring. So I'm just going to get to the so I'll tell you some backstory before we get to some action sequences here. Um, you know, I, Joe Johnson, was chosen as director of this film. Steven Spielberg directed the first two, Jurassic Park and The Lost World. I find those films to be sevens, eights out of ten. This here, I think, is the true, uh, you know, essential Jurassic Park film in which, you know, people ask, hey, you know, what Jurassic Park should I show my kid for the first time? I always say go to Jurassic Park 3 first. Uh, you know, you will find no better acting, no better story, and uh, no better characters uh, than any of the other Jurassic Park films. And just the drama of it, uh, and romance and everything. Uh, fun, interesting fact for you. Now, to get this directing role, Steven Spielberg directed the first two. I really wanted to uh, get the part for this to be able to direct it. I know there are a lot of other ones like James Cameron, Ron Howard, uh, you know, even Quentin Tarantino thought that maybe he could do the sequel to, to The Lost World. And I got the part because I was just you know, over the top aggressive. In fact, um, you know, a few years before we filmed this, when the script had been written and they were looking around for directors, I decided to kind of pursue and persuade Steven Spielberg to allow me the honor of directing this. So I dressed up as a dinosaur. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those kind of T-Rex blow up uh, dinosaur costumes. I bought one from Amazon for about $75. And this one Amazon first started as well. Uh, but I bought it, I put it on, blew it up, and I showed up to the set of AI where he was filming at the time and uh, just continued to walk through the studios as if I was a dinosaur. Uh, this way it could show that I was that motivated and that excited uh, to do the film. Steven Spielberg laughed uh, the first time I did it. And then by the seventh or eighth day, I could definitely see some, some you know, uh, impressions in his eyes, uh, you know, maybe a little annoyance at times, but really I just saw that he was incredibly impressed. The fact that I could walk through so nonchalant uh, that I really understood the movements of dinosaurs and even the sounds of dinosaurs. Uh, so by the third or fourth week of this, uh, you know, I was banned from set and I took that as a compliment thinking, you know what, Steven Spielberg had seen enough. He didn't need me any uh, to show off anymore and I was going to be the one. So sure enough, a couple uh, weeks later, uh, there was a meeting at Universal and I got called in and I was offered the role to direct this. Uh, it was a huge honor. And uh, I got the first script and thought, you know, uh, I need some of the finest writers I can find in Hollywood. So I called upon Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, two Oscar-winning writers uh, who did movies like Election, uh, Sideways, uh, Nebraska, uh, The Descendants, in which they won the Oscar for. And I thought, you know what? These guys here are going to take a Jurassic Park film and make it so much better and stronger. And, um, you know, I thought they had, wrote a hell of a script. Unfortunately, I found out later that uh, instead they weren't a fan of the series. In fact, they never even saw the first two Jurassic Park films. And really, they had an inside joke on how badly they can kind of ruin the franchise. Um, I thought it was hilarious. It's a great practical joke. Unfortunately, I didn't know it at the time. So, uh, you know, the script has some plot holes uh, at times and, you know, just some scenes that are absolutely ridiculous. But you know what? Uh, I rose to the occasion and made this into a masterpiece anyway. And Jim Taylor and Alexander Payne's, they got the last laugh. We are 17 minutes in and finally we get some action on the screen. This is where Joe Johnston shines. I'm really proud of this scene in which they are flying at the island. The backstory that Alex and our Alexander and Jim wrote uh, a little ridiculous. In fact, we have Paul and Amanda Kirby who lost their son. Uh, as we talked about earlier, he has flown into the island by paraglide, para something, and uh, they're not going to rescue him. So they duped 
Sam O'Neill's character, Dr. Alan Grannon, to go in with them. Uh, they just offered him a bunch of money, drugged him, dragged him on a plane and said, let's get to this island. You can show us where it's done. Uh, there is a kind of a dream nightmare sequence in which he falls asleep, Dr. Alan Grant, and wakes up to a velociraptor beside his face. Um, you know, originally it was going to be a whole dream sequence in which the raptor had a whole family there and they were dealing cards, kind of like uh, the famous picture with the dogs. And, um, you know, due to budget constraints and things, we skipped that. Instead, we just picked the uh, Velociraptor head. Um, we had someone on set put his hand through the neck, move the mouth, and you can see he's just so natural as if a Velociraptor would really do it. They're flying in over the island, recognizing some of the dinosaurs, and Dr. Alan Grant is uh, pointing them out. Uh, Mr. Kirby here is saying, them, where are you going to land the plane? Plot twist. Dr. Alan Grant doesn't know that they're going to be landing, uh, in which he starts freaking out like a bitch. Um, you know, the drama here. You can just see it in his eyes that he really is scared. He survived this the first time, and I just have to do it again. And um, yeah, the movie begins. At this point, the plane has landed, uh, and we're going to start seeing our, our first dinosaurs here in a little bit. A uh, fun little fact about that plane flight, by the way. Originally, um, you know, we're flying overhead. We're actually filming in a plane, and we had some pretty bad turbulence. In fact, um, you know, we dropped probably a good 5,000 feet in a couple of seconds. Uh, so what you saw on screen, the shakes and things was real at first, and then eventually uh, the entire plane just plummeted. Uh, we had some great sequences that I wanted to use for the film. Unfortunately, the sound guy was too busy screaming like a girl and just ruined the audio. We thought, you know, we can't use this. So instead, we had to do some things within the studio. Not Joe Johnson's style of directing. I could do it on site, but, you know, we had to do the best we can. The family has landed, uh, uh, as, as well as the assistance with Dr. Alan Grant and some of the others. Uh, I forget their roles, forget their names, but, you know, they're hell of a sports. And, uh, you know, they did a great job on the film. So uh, here they're calling, trying to find their son, and they hear a big roar coming their way. And sure enough, it's going to be a Spinosaurus. Uh, I chose a Spinosaurus uh, because the first two films of Steven Spielberg had a Tyrannosaurus for these scenes. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do something better. I'm going to pick a bigger dinosaur. Uh, you know, they always say bigger is better, both penis-wise and dinosaur action scenes-wise. So I went bigger and went with the Spinosaurus. I uh, did some research. Saw a couple pictures in Wikipedia, and this is what the, was the design for it. Uh, essentially, we took the T-Rex, we put a fin on its back, uh, we made a longer snout, and we said, this is a brand new dinosaur that people are going to love. So here it is. Uh, the scene I really like is that we're going to, they're going to be taking off in a plane and flying away, and this Spinosaurus is going to come out and somehow grab the plane, which, again, defies logic, gravity, and a lot of other things. However, you know what? I blame that on Alexander and Jim. Instead, I just made a hell of a scene out of this here. Somehow the plane has uh, broken in a bunch of pieces, landed on top of a tree, and the characters are fine. Again, might not be the most logical thing, but, you know, Jim Taylor and uh, Alexander Payne wrote this as a way of ruining the series. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to make uh, lemonade out of lemons. I'm going to make this a successful scene. And the idea here that they're going to survive, get out of the plane, and, uh, you know, a Spinosaurus is going to get them. The Spinosaurus here, I got to tell you, I'm calling it five tons of nightmare. Uh, we did. We created an entire dinosaur out of uh, Robotronics. Uh, is that what they're called? Robotomics, um, you know, animatronics, uh, erotic uh, tronics. You know, we took, pretty much took lots of pieces of everywhere that we found in Universal Studios here and made it into this dinosaur. I call it a five-ton nightmare because this damn thing didn't really work well. We invested millions of dollars into this thing, hired some of the finest uh, robotics 
um, and porn stars on set to put this thing together. And you know what? It does. It looks great. It looks natural. But the thing just didn't move very well, um, probably because it was powered by a uh, hand remote that you would see like in an RC car. Um, and it should, probably should should have been bigger and had more options and movement to it. Uh, but instead, it just you know looked like a giant ass dinosaur. Uh, really, the T-Rex with a long snout and um, a little fin on its back. So the Spinosaurus has reached in, grabbed the black guy out, thrown him on the ground. Uh, this is really one of the first instances of a message of Black Lives Matter. Uh, I know that Jim Taylor and Alexander Payne really wanted to make a political film. So in this case, it had a black guy die. And you think to yourself, you know what? He shouldn't have died first, uh, but he did. And so black lives do, in fact, matter. Right, as we watch this Spinosaurus scene, I got to tell you, I, I couldn't be more proud of the graphics and the realism of it. Although Alexander uh, Payne and Jim Thomas wrote pretty much a ridiculous uh, idea here, the idea that the they could survive in the plane and the Spinosaurus would take him down and they would survive. You know, not the most logical thing, but I, Joe Johnson, made it look believable. And that's really all that matters in a film, uh, especially a film in which the writers were playing a trick on the director and the audience. Uh, I thought as the scene kind of just goes on and on and on of rid ridiculousness, I just kind of fill you on some, some of the fun uh, behind the scene, uh, you know, uh, pranks and jokes and things outside of, uh, you know, the one that the screenwriters pulled on me. Uh, actor Alexandro played Billy here. And I got to tell you, I had a real trouble with his name. I think it's Alice, Alessandro, Alex, Alex, Alexandro. I don't know. On the first day, I kept calling him Alexander, which he did wasn't a big fan of. Uh, eventually, I just called him Adam. Uh, Alex, I tried. I really actually still don't know his name. Uh, we found this actor on the back lot of Universal. I think he was working. Uh, not quite sure, but we pulled him out anyway. And we said, you know what? You look like a movie star. So let's throw you in here to run around with some dinosaurs. And sure enough, this is what the performance we got. And I got to tell you, A plus, kid. A plus. Uh, so young Aiden here, um, you know, really just put on a hell of a show. And he was a good sport, too. I remember we kind of went back and forth. And I think after script his names a few times, uh, he wanted to play a little trick on me. So one day he called me, instead of Joe Johnston, uh, Joe Jackass. Uh, I thought it was hilarious. And, uh, you know, I thought once or twice would be enough. And then he continued. In fact, at one point, he decided to change my dressing room label to, again, Joe Jackass, my director chair to Joe Jackass. And uh, really, anything that had my name on it scribbled out and said Joe Jackass. I thought he got some of the other members of the crew in on it, but apparently it was just him. So what can I say? This, uh, this Adam guy was a real dick. But, uh, you know, he was fun. He was a real good sport about everything, and I really enjoyed working with him. Well, we're still not done this damn Spino scene here. Um, as you can see, the actors are going to be coming upon a carcass and the T-Rex reaches up and, uh, you know, yells, or not, I shouldn't, shouldn't yell, but roars at them. Uh, fun fact for you here, the head of this T-Rex is actually taken from Universal Studios. Uh, the ride, the Jurassic Park ride, uh, yeah, we were low on funding and we didn't want to create another one because we spent it all on the five-ton nightmare. So we just kind of like, you know, unscrewed the three or four bolts from the Universal ride, you know, trailered it into uh, the set here and we used it for the day. And I got to tell you, you probably wouldn't even know the difference that it was a set piece from a theme park ride. The T-Rex and Spinosaurus are now going to fight. 
this was just a great, you know, uh, artistic animated work. You know, as you see, they're very stiff when they're robotics, but during the computer scenes, we can just rank, make them come alive. Something that's so seamless that really no one really ma uh, would really notice. Um, but, you know, as a director, I have a, I have a fine eye, uh, but I still think it just looks miraculous. And I got to tell you, the Spinosaurus winning over the T-Rex, um, great drama because you thought to yourself that T-Rex was going to win every movie. But nope, we made sure the Spinosaurus won it this time. So uh, the family here is finding out that, uh, or I'm sorry, Dr. Alan Grant's finding out that the family had lied to them. They're looking for their son. Uh, blah, 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 some of these uh, acting pieces here. But I did want to kind of tell you a, a fun, a little side fact as well, that most of this film, the sets here, was stolen from Steven Spielberg's Hook. Uh, the movie Hook he did about, you know, six, seven years earlier than this. Um, you know, they kept it in a, a trailer. I, I got to tell you, in the back of Universal Studios. And once we spent all the money on actors and that freaking Spinosaurus, we we're like, you know what? Uh, we need to save some money somewhere here. So uh, we, I found this trailer of the hook pieces, and I said, let's just throw it all together. So this is actually where Rubio, uh, or Rufio, I should say. No, Rufio? Rubio. Rufi. No, no, that guy um, uh, from the from the Hook movie. Uh, this is where they all sang and danced and uh, you know flew around everything. I got to tell you, you wouldn't notice that the scenes or these set pieces were so old, seven, eight years old. You, there were some dust and things we had to kind of uh, you know brush off them, but I think they look fantastic, and you wouldn't really know the difference. Some of my favorite scenes here, uh, in which the couple, uh, they, they're divorced, Sia Leone and William H. Macy, the Kirby couple, uh, they have divorced, but they're going to secretly be changing behind the plane together and get a little saucy. Uh, that connection there, again, I wanted to add something more than just action and, and uh, drama. I wanted to add something that the Oscar audiences could really get their teeth into, <laughs> pun intended, uh, and that is a little spark in their romance here. This scene transitions into a time in which the a, uh, the boyfriend of uh, Miss Kirby here is going to, you know, he was trapped from that paraglide, parasail, para-something, uh, the parachute, and his body is going to fall from the tree, drama, scares and screams, and you're going to see a skeleton still hanging from that parachute. Um, I got to tell you, again, looking back here, uh, I've been told, read a lot of, uh, you know, message boards and comment things and reviews over the years. And a lot of people say that isn't very logical. How can a body decompose that quickly over just a few weeks? And I got to tell you, you know what? I have a defense for this. Humidity. Have you been to Florida? Do you have any idea what that does to the body? It just breaks down so quickly. So it is logical that an entire human body could be broken down to just a skeleton in just a few weeks hanging from a tree. Uh, but you know what? Doesn't matter. You can take it at that surface value here. All that matters is we have some great looking dinosaurs in this movie. After that, the other logical piece that I've been thrown at a lot is the idea that they find their son, uh, is after a raptor attack, uh, they find their son who has survived by himself on this island for over three or four weeks while his uh, stepfather dangled uh, like a skeleton from a parachute. So we have somehow a decomposed body and yet a young boy that survived it all. You know, Again, Jim Taylor, uh, Alexander Payne, you you pulled a fast one on us here, but I took those uh, ideas and just made it work and it made it into this great masterpiece here. And, um, you know, I had defended a little bit the idea that uh, this little Kirby boy played by Trevor Morgan 
He had a bunker. Uh, he had some food hidden out in there. He didn't have much left, but he still he had some food. Uh, he survived four weeks worth on this island. The idea that he survived the dinosaurs, you know what? Uh, you know, he's a little smelly. He's put some uh, some dinosaur piss on himself, and they didn't like it. So, you know, I threw in some extra logic that Jim and Alexander left out as a way of thinking, you know what? This is a realistic movie. So, you know, don't challenge me, Joe Johnson. Uh, uh, appreciate the work that I have done and telling this fantastic story. We got raptors all over this flipping movie, but I got to tell you, my favorite raptor scene here is uh, after they found the sun and the and the dead skeleton logic. Uh, they have gone into a kind of building or warehouse in which they find out it's kind of a place where they did some cloning. Uh, great set pieces, if you ask me. Uh, but the velociraptors are in there, and you get a good look at the velociraptors. Some of the changes that we've done with them, including adding a, a bit of a, a mohawk to them. We want them to be more hard ass punk rock type uh, velociraptors. Um, you know, a lot of criticism for it, that it kind of looked like a chicken or something along those lines. But I got to tell you, I think it added a lot of uh, scares to you, uh, scared of a gigantic lizard with some feathers on it. Here they're surviving as Velociraptor. Um, some other kind of just interesting things were in the scene is that a lot of people also criticize this for being a ripoff of the Lost World. Uh, this that second one by Steven Spielberg in which uh, they go to the communications building and the rappers attack them. Uh, they look very similar. And I got to tell you, you know what? Tricks on you. Yep, absolutely. If you figure that out, then good job. Uh, due to budget cuts of that damn five-ton nightmare, uh, we just kind of went back to that same set place and piece and everything that Steven Spielberg did. And uh, we kind of filled some scenes. In fact, we actually just copied and pasted some of the reels from it. If you look real closely, the Raptors, uh, some don't have Mohawks anymore. You look at some of them, uh, the building, the building's completely changed. We just kind of filled in some gaps here that we used, you know, similar to the story of the first Jurassic Park in which uh, the dinosaurs, they filled in um, their gene sequences with that of Toad. So, you know, some extra uh, science thrown in there, but honestly, we just kind of ran out of money, so we stole some things from Spielberg. So if you really want to know anything else about the scene, just ask Spielberg. More talking, more walking. It's like freaking Lord of the Rings here. Um, but anyway, we're going to a scene, one of my favorites, in which we introduce a new dinosaur to the series. That's the pterodactyl. I know Spielberg uh, thought about considering using these for the second film, but he didn't have the balls to do it. You know who's got the balls to do it? Joe Johnston. Uh, Joe Jackass. Uh, <laughs> oh, Oh, that piece of shit, Alex. Okay, so anyway, we're here at the pterodactyl scene. Experts say that the pterodactyl is only going to be a few feet long and, uh, you know, a couple feet tall. Uh, I didn't like that, so instead I wanted to make them bigger and scarier, so I just made them 15 feet. Uh, gigantic, something that was, you do know, comparison to a, uh, you know, kind of a T-Rex but could fly. Not maybe the most accurate of choices, but you know what? When you want action, you call Joe Johnson, and that's what you got. So here they, the characters are in a bird cage that they later find out. There's a dramatic bridge scene in which they're walking across. Great drama. Also in the scene, you find out that, uh, that Billy, uh, played by um, Austin, is, uh, has stolen raptor eggs, put them in his lunchbox. And uh, that's kind of been the drama uh, of the second half of the film in which the raptor is going to be chasing them because they have these eggs. Um, but we're going to really focus on this bird cage scene here. I love the drama with the, the bridge and the slow buildup to it. 
Also, once you're introduced to the pterodactyl, you realize just how big a fright it is. All computer generalized. Uh, yeah, we couldn't really f- afford after the five ton uh, nightmare to rebuild a pterodactyl. So instead, we just kind of computerized the shit out of that thing. And I got to tell you, it looks pretty believable to me. Oh, pterodactyls are there. They go pick up the Kirby boy and they're flying around the cage with it. Uh, I like uh, the drama in which uh, the young Billy character played by Alec is uh, going to parachute off the side of this ledge here. And he's going to parachute and save uh, the young Kirby boy played by Trevor Morgan. Uh, uh, One of my favorite scenes we shot. In fact, we had to do it again on a green screen. And you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. Everything is just that smooth. Uh, the kid gets dropped into a bird cage. Or, I'm sorry, a bird's nest, and within the bird cage, and little pterodactyl babies are nipping at him and biting at him. Uh, really, they'd rip him to shreds. But you know, he's wearing leather and, and canvas and things, so it makes it a little more difficult, more time. Um, if you notice here, we did not use computerized uh, generators for these little birds. Instead, we decided to call Jim Henson up and we said, "Hey, Jim Henson, we got about $250 left in this budget. What can you do with these little ba- pterodactyl babies?" And he said, uh, "You know what? Well, first of all, I'm dead." but I'll call some extra people up and uh, they can do it for me. And in fact, uh, they did this here with $250, these incredibly realistic little pterodactyls. Um, You'd think that they were done by animatronics and robotics and things, but instead uh, with the small budget, they kind of did more like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle style. And they just put small midgets, uh, mostly Asians, uh, into these little costumes. And then they ran around and chased uh, little Trevor Morgan. Um, you know, the, the little people that they included were just great sports. Um, I didn't call them dwarves, um, but, uh, you know, they got on those costumes and they made realistic dinosaur sounds and movements. And we couldn't be happier with how it turned out. Uh, Billy uh, saves the day. He flies and picks up young Trevor Morgan um, and uh, then disappears. Uh, there is quite a plot hole here, which you don't really know what happens to Billy once everyone falls in the water. But you know what? Use your imagination. Uh, there was really a, a couple extra scenes which they explain this, but uh, because I really was kind of, you know, pissed off at uh, at young um, Austin, I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to kind of have to cut him out of this. So I didn't want to deal with them anymore. Said, you know what? Go home for a couple weeks. Uh, we got it from here, and uh, you know, I'll bring it back at the end of the movie. We're going to fast forward to the climax scene. Uh, we had a, we passed a scene involving the Spinosaurus in water. I'll be honest with you, that day was a nightmare, so I don't really want to relive it. Uh, but instead, I'm going to fast forward to the Velociraptor scene. Again, seeing some of those Velociraptors' new style with their neon blue on their tails and those little feathers sticking out the top of them like mohawks, uh, just really give it that 80s theme I was looking for in which they're kind of like a gang. And they're sneaking up upon and they're, uh, you know, haunting their prey and things. Just, you know, great, uh, you know, kind of stylized decision I made here. The big drama is that they're going to uh, get these eggs back and Dr. Alan Grant is going to save them from being eaten uh, because he has the raptor voice box that Billy made earlier in the film. Uh, fun fact for you, that voice box was uh, is computer generated. In fact, actually, it's a kazoo. Uh, you know one of those kazoos. Uh, we put that in that in, in Sam Neill's hand and said, you know what, you're a fine actor, go with it. And he did, and he made a hell of a movie, uh, or sorry, hell of a scene out of uh, holding this kazoo. We were all laughing hysterically, uh, but he was professional and did a great job, and we just computer generalized over it. So when you watch this scene, just picture instead of that uh, uh, raptor noise, it's really a kazoo that is going on, um, and uh, you know he did a great job with it. 
And here we are, a undershirtless uh, Sam Neill character, Dr. Alan Grant, is saving the day with his kazoo. Uh, raptors get scared, run off, and really they're not scared of uh, the kazoo. Uh, they're kind of just freaked out by it. Really, the helicopters and everything are coming to save the day. That's what they're scared of. Great plot twist you never see coming. We're at an hour and 21 minutes. The other Jurassic Park films are well over two hours, and I thought, you know what? You don't want to overload the people with, uh, with story build up and uh you know we also ran low on budget so an hour and 20 minutes i'm going to start cutting this film kind of short here get rid of all the dinosaurs and instead save the day other little fun facts for you, you may not realize is it's important not just with the graphics and the visuals of it but the sounds of the film so you know i just thought you would be interested to know that the raptors uh their noises that fine noise that they uh come up with the, the frightening squeals and calls uh, actually done with a mixture of a parakeet a uh, one-legged rooster and a three-year-old child that we found on set uh, put those three voices together and you got yourself a raptor. Uh, for the T-Rex, we took a, the sound of a schnauzer, uh, a bullfrog, and a ferret playing on a wheel. Blend those three noises together, you got yourself a T-Rex. And lastly, the new dinosaur, the Spinosaurus, uh, you take some larger things like a walrus, mix it with a Hicksine cockroach, and uh, lastly, my Uncle Tony, uh, who was on the toilet one day, I was playing a prank on him and filmed him, uh, you know, making natural toilet noises. And I got to tell you, it got mixed in uh, with the audio uh, producers and things, or audio editors, and uh, they made a hell of a great Spinosaurus uh, noise out of it. So uh, props to them. We're now at the hour and 23 minute mark, and I gotta tell you, we wrap this thing up real quick. So they are rescued because of a phone call by Laura Dern's character, uh, Elliot Sadler. Uh, the military has come pick them up. Once they're in the, the helicopter, they see that Billy has also survived. Uh, again, played by Alyssa, I just couldn't stand him. So I cut out a lot of his backstory and things, and instead just put him at the end, covered in bandages, and said, you deal with it. And you know what? Uh, Alyssa did a hell of a job playing Billy. So you know what? By, let bygones be bygones. He did a hell of a job. So we are at the end here at a minute. I'm sorry, an hour and 25 minutes. Uh, I wrapped this beautiful masterpiece up real quick. So take that, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg and Colin when doing their over two minute, two hour uh, Jurassic Parks. Uh, some other kind of just fun things I want to throw in here at the end. You realize that uh, there are no music throughout the film, just kind of sound and dramatic uh, scores not done by uh, John Williams, who normally does Steven Spielberg's works. Uh, instead, uh, I wanted to use 90s dance music with the uh, Velociraptors being kind of punk rocky. I'm from the 80s. I thought, well, how would it be cool what if they did some early 90s stuff, you know, some LaBouche, uh, some RuPaul. I even include a scene with the first Spinosaurus doing Hathaway's What is Love. All the characters would stop, break out, and nod their heads, similar to these Saturday Night Live characters, uh, the Badabi boys. But unfortunately, we got the actors to do it, but the Spinosaurus couldn't follow uh, with that small remote control that we used for him. He was not able to nod his head uh, in the 45-degree angle in which we wanted him to. So we unfortunately had to cut that out. And with that said, when we threw in some 90s music and things throughout it, the producers were not big fans. Uh, it's kind of difficult to focus on a uh, the intensity of a velociraptor chase uh, when Madonna's like a virgin is playing in the background. So unfortunately we you know had to do the normal thing that was uh, the standard set by Steven Spielberg and use uh, dramatic scores and said so we did that. But you know what I got to be honest with you I Joe Johnson made a hell of a movie. 
Uh, I know I've made some fine movies in the past, but nothing gets better than the hour and 25 minute long Jurassic Park 3, written by Oscar winners, uh, directed by me, having Oscar winners even in the film. You can't ask for more, and we delivered. So I know we have some more Jurassic Worlds coming up for you to enjoy, but honestly, again, always go back to Jurassic Park 3, probably the, the apex of the franchise and one of the finest films in history. I am Joe Johnson. Thank you for listening along.